0: Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Catherine. What's up? Hello, hello. Hi. So do you hear this sound? Yes. That's the sound of a traditional pen. Ew, it's so gross. I wasn't going to go with gross, but I mean, you could just throw it out there. cringe
1: uh, cringeworthy.
0: <laughs> so if you know me, I'm always taking notes. I'm always writing things down. And one of the challenges with that, I love writing stuff on paper with old school pens. However, capturing that stuff, quantifying it, organizing it in a way that I can use it later Maybe not my strong suit. If anyone's seen all all the note cards around our studio, it's intense. That's why I'm really excited for today's new contest. And we have a partnership going with Beta. You've seen the contest that we're running. We're giving away really cool tech. And today's tech is no different. Today's tech is the Neolab Convergence Smart Pen. The M1 Smart Pen. I'm using it now. Do you hear anything? No. That's because it's smart. It's a smart (laughs) pen. So when you're writing with this pen, you're going to be able to take Pages of notes. They're going to be recorded. They're going to be. You're going to be able to use these later on. How many pages? You ask. Catherine, guess. Guess how many pages you can take. Uh, fifty. Okay. Two thousand. <laughs> One thousand. So just just with this pen, it looks like a normal pen. Uh, I love that it's fluorescent. I love that it's bright, and I can't wait to start using this more. So it connects to your computer or your uh, Android or your Apple device via Bluetooth, and I'm really excited to just start. Yeah, getting that, you know, keeping that tactile experience going, but also being able to record stuff better. agree. We're giving away two of them. One of them we're trying out. So make sure you go to mission.org slash giveaway. When you enter, you're going to get one entry to win. You can get more entries by referring more subscribers to our daily newsletter. So stay tuned and we have more contests and more great content in the works. I was like perfect in college like I was like why why isn't this like the magical Harry Potter pen riding
1: into like you know and now it's true that's so crazy
2: I'm Alec Baldwin and you are listening to Mission Daily selected as best of 2018 by Apple Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning
1: Hi there and welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Sean Whiteley. Sean is a serial founder with over 20 years experience in the enterprise software industry. To date, Sean has founded three companies. His latest company is Qualified, a conversational marketing application designed for businesses that use Salesforce CRM. Prior to Qualified, Sean founded a search engine marketing company for B2B marketers that was acquired by Salesforce. He was also general manager and senior vice president at Salesforce prior to starting his second company, Get Feedback, a customer experience business. In this episode, Chad and Sean discuss the struggles of founding a business, the importance of customer development, and the lessons Sean learned from the Salesforce acquisition of his first company.
0: Sean, thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. So you're coming over from Los Altos Sales? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been in the Bay Area? I've been in the Bay Area about 20, a little over 20 years.
1: I was, uh, I actually am from Virginia. I grew up in Virginia, spent a bunch of time in the Northeast, a little bit of time in Europe, started my career in LA, and then uh, ended up in the Bay Area and never left.
0: Would you you uh, start your career in, in LA? Whew.
1: As a consultant, my first career, I played soccer for a while before, and then uh, sort of uh, after a moment of clarity in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I figured out I needed to figure out something else to do. Um, (laughs) can we hear that? It sounds like a story. (laughs) It was just, you know, I was, um, you made most of your money playing soccer from camps. Okay. And I remember seeing a guy who at the time I thought was older and he was a lot younger than I am now. Um, who was stressed out about getting back and, you know, getting back for camp and his ankles were iced. And I was thinking, not sure that this is the path. And, uh, so I, you know, freaked out, you know, went back to grad school, moved home. And, uh, I started going to school at night. And I got an action internship at in America Online. This was in 1996. Oh, wow. So I had Sean at AOL.com. <laughs> and uh, that turned into a job. And I started implementing, um, basically doing like cleaning up data to upload it into the SAP, PeopleSoft, the big ERP systems. And you know those things got big. And I ended up taking a job consulting for Pricewaterhouse and ended up out at Sony Pictures Entertainment in LA. F- and uh, then I worked at Toyota down there for a while. And that was kind of how I started in the enterprise software business, just kind of fell into it.
0: Sure. What was that uh, like back in the, you know, 96 or uh, all the way up until the crash? What what was the, what were the dynamics like? And what were your thoughts about like the future of the industry? Did you think it was sustainable or did you think it was going to crash at any moment? Well, you know, what's funny is um, I'm sitting there at AOL when
1: it was essentially like the number, the only ISP you had, you know, it was, you know, you dialed your modem up and you got online and for all intents and purposes, like that was the internet, mm. right? And the content came from AOL and their different channels, and I'm and they were they had a pay per use model. I mean, I was right. too young to appreciate this, but people were paying per minute to be on the internet.
0: You know, is crazy was, thinking about is <laughs>
1: Completely nuts. And um, I watched like the rise of chat rooms and the rise of sports media and the rise of email and all these things. And I started, I saw the numbers at this company, and again, this meant nothing to me at the time. I was pretty young. But um, I actually wrote a paper on it uh, in grad school, and my professor hammered me on it. And he said, "You know, America online is not representative of a typical business. You can't you can't take lessons from this business because it doesn't apply to the real world." And I remember being bitter for a pretty long time that I got beat up on this paper. I always wish I could go a- back and tell him, "Like, hey, uh- <laughs> it's a public company, and it's <laughs> but, uh, no, very much was, in the real there world." There was only about a thousand people there. At oh this time. wow, yeah, a thousand people. It was in Tyson's Corner. It was yeah. before it, before anything happened.
0: Yeah. Steph and I are uh, both from Maryland. So we knew, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can remember grabbing those CDs at the grocery store and uh, <laughs> like, yeah. this is awesome. We're yeah. playing World of Warcraft online. It's going to be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. At, so after LA, you go to grad school. What do you study in grad school? And uh, you, me- you mentioned that paper. Can you expand on your experiences there and uh, what was next?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, school, school is tough for me. I wasn't, uh, the classroom learning environment wasn't, wasn't great for me. It wasn't good fit. Um, I'm ADD, I'm all over the place. I switched from one thing to the next thing to the next thing really quick and the classroom environment wasn't great for me. But I did have some really interesting classes. I mean, most of them were business classes, but some of the things that kind of fascinated me were sort of the the organizational side of business, right? Like team dynamics and team building and leadership and things like that. And I always thought that was kind of really interesting because I think a lot of that stuff, a lot of those principles are still relatable. Sure. um, Unlike a lot of principles that kind of went out the window a long time ago. I mean the basics of business, right? I mean it's funny being in the Silicon Valley. Sometimes you forget that you know you're supposed to be profitable. You're supposed to make yes. more money than you spend, right? right? Um, we live in the world of growth, right. where you know people create value through growth as opposed to EBITDA margins, right? Um, yes.
0: So um, we've had a couple of people tell us you know don't focus on revenue because then you can get dinged on that when you're and it's just the most absurd type of advice in, in the world that. I've only found exists here. Right. <laughs> Cause you yeah. go, out, you go outside of Silicon Valley and you try that yeah. advice in like a local <laughs> the chamber of commerce or something and you get laughed out of the room. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's a, it's such a bubble. I mean, I remember the first, when we first got acquired by Salesforce, I remember I, I I'm a strong believer in trying to walk in another person's shoes. I think that, you know, being empathetic is, is really important as, a, as an entrepreneur to really Definitely. understand the people in their life and their challenges and their problems. And, so I sat on a call and I remember going in there and it was about you know, cloud computing and you know, it's a new software delivery model and it's about moving to the cloud and you know multi tenancy and all these kind of things that in a Silicon Valley we, you know, at the time were were top of mind. And the first call I got on, I realized like, wow, this is these are people that run their business in spreadsheets. Like there was a guy from Birmingham, Alabama, that was a bait shop. And he was just trying to get out of spreadsheets. Right. You know, into like an app where he could have have some reporting, and it was it was really basic. That was like a lesson to me that don't don't get too stuck here, right? In the Silicon Valley, right? There's a lot of greatness, and I love it here. I I love the dynamic here, where risk is rewarded, and Same. arguing is okay. It's right. a good thing, you know. It's not personal. You're just trying to come up with a better solution. So I identify with a lot of the qualities that are here, but I also realize that this is not representative of most of the world,
0: right? And uh, you mentioned earlier that you supplemented some of your learning with the sabbatical where you took a year and a half off it between, was that the second company?
1: Yeah. After we, after we sold our second company, we took some time off, you know, we were um, just needed some time. So we all kind of took off and did our thing. I've got, I've got two little girls and uh, my wife has a, you know, a very intense job and she was kind of new to that job. And uh, it was a good time for me to sort of bring some balance, a little bit of balance back to the family. So I took about a year and a half off and I spent a lot of time cooking. I took a bunch of knife skills classes. I spent a lot of time with my girls, did some stuff around the house. And, you know, after a while, um, kind of got through a lot of that stuff. And it's funny, it took it took about six months to decompress. You know, I mean, after a while, you're checking your phone and right. you're sort of like, yeah, there's a sale at <laughs> Baby Gap, but I wasn't, wasn't getting any, you know, real, real, real important emails. And it dawned, right. it dawned on me that like, I don't have- something hanging over me that i should be doing and then i sort of just all of a sudden decompressed and yeah. it was interesting to, to watch my my wife go she was really going hard and when you take a step back and you relax and decompress and then you watch the pace that she's going right. you know i was kind of on the sideline just kind of enamored with you know her drive and and what she was doing and in that time you know i i was just more present more present in everything you know you you like to, you know, you get home at night and you have, you know, it's not, it's not all the time where you can say, okay, I'm going to be present and my kids are going to be present for these two hours before they go to bed and I get home. But when you're present all the time, you can have these kind of organic, great yeah. times together. And um, I think that was kind of the best part about it. But we, we would connect every couple months and we would get together up at my business partner has a, a small vineyard up in Healdsburg and we'd get up there and before we drank too much wine. We'd always come with a framework to pitch ideas about what we're gonna do. And it it wasn't strictly B2B, it was a lot of things. Mm. And we had a framework for pitching it. You did a benefit statement and a positioning statement and you talked about what's the TAM and and usually, you know, you're halfway through it and you're getting laughed out of the room, which is fun. <laughs> but um yeah. we we just kept coming back to this concept of, you know, there's so much automation that's happening, there's so much change, there's so much data. How is this going to impact the way that people work, you know, we just kind of kept focusing on these different sort of solutions that involved helping companies like really kind of figure out, like in reality, what is automation good for, and you know where should you be spending your human resources? Like your human calories are your most expensive, right? You pay their W two, you pay for their real estate. You, sure. you know, they're expensive, but they're also your most powerful. Right. So how do you kind of map people to your most important? prospects and your most important customers. And how do you leverage automation for all of the other things? So you're kind of getting maximum efficiency across your business.
0: So was that the genesis then of Qualified? Did it start in one of those pitches at the vineyard or where did that start? Yeah. I mean, we, so we, we used
1: Intercom. We're software developers, right? And Intercom was, you know, really great for us. Like it was, it was in our app. It was for software developers. It was connected to the events in our app. And you know we figured lo and behold, you talk to people, right? Because you get really hung up in in software around reading data sets and looking at cohorts and trying to kind of make assumptions based on a lot of data, which is fun and interesting. But at the end of the day, if you can pick customers that are representative of the problem you're trying to solve and you talk to them, have high fidelity conversations in context at the right time, it's super powerful. And so we were pretty inspired by that. And we, we started thinking like, how can we take this conversational model and apply it to um, a process that's near and dear to us. You know, we've grown up in CRM, we're we're children of CRM, we're we're integration guys, and um, we started thinking about, like, how can we solve some problems through real-time conversations? And um, that's kind of where we ended up. But at the end of the day, we also realized that, you know, it can get pretty noisy, Mm-hmm. right? Which is why we ended up with the name qualified. So, you know, the whole idea is that you use data to qualify who's good fit for a conversation and for everybody else to get automation, but you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's hard that it's hard to scale that across, you know, your sales and marketing process. So right. it's a, it's, it's the beginning of something that we think is representative of a very different sort of demand generation, a very different sort of sales automation. It's, it's gonna be very different over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we think actually for once, we're, we're early. Um, right. A lot of our companies, we've kind of gone in to a pretty established market where there's established pricing, there's established feature sets. You know, This time um, it's pretty early. So it's, it's, it's a different sort of experience. Where, um, we're having a lot of fun being early for once and like trying to figure things out with people as opposed to trying to catch up to someone else or differentiate based on something.
0: And that was something we talked about earlier before we started recording was kind of how you and your team were investing in just having tons of conversations, tons of customer development, talks with uh, clients and prospective clients. Could you talk a little bit about customer development and uh, how it's helped you in your, your three companies?
1: Yeah. I think we've realized each, you know, every, at every company we do, we do a retrospective after the business and we've sold our first two. So um one of the things we did when we took some time off is we did a retrospective and we looked at all of the things that had worked and the even longer list of things that we had really messed up. In that retrospective, you know, we talked about like, you know, our ASP and sort of how how we did, you know, a lot of different things in the business, but um customer development is something that like you just can't do enough of it. And now that we're we're older, we have a bigger network, a lot of the people that we've worked with and our past jobs have gone on to be CMOs and they've gone to be in leadership positions at companies. And the nice thing about that network is that we can go and have the very high fidelity conversations with these people. I mean, we've, we've gained a lot of trust. They know that we're, we're not trying to sell them something they don't need. We're really just trying to learn about their problems. And um,
0: make sure and, it's a fit, right? Because in the early sure days, you can't fit. take on big enterprise clients when it's not a fit. No, it's no. Uh, that's not a recipe. I don't think, anyways. Don't have too much experience with it, but it seems like it'd be a recipe for trouble. Yeah, it is. I mean,
1: you know, that part of you know, part of building a company is like that sort of trying to find your product market fit, right? Sure. And figuring out that is a is a big part of success or failure at a software startup. But customer development is just something you just can't do enough of. I mean you just can't have enough conversations. And we've we've taken a very different direction this time based on how we've done things previously. We're 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 selecting companies that we think represent our, our ICP, our ideal c- customer profile based on some things that we have in a in a doc and we're we're hand selecting them and we're working really closely with them. You know, we're we're asking them to use our software, we're asking to sit with them and mm-hmm. get feedback and help them them give us the feedback that we need to iterate on the problem that we're both trying to solve together, so it it's a little bit different you know you typically you know you um uh, we just did our first financing, and typically once you do your first financing your seed series you're you're in a race because you want to you know get to a certain a r r before you raise again. Mm-hmm. We're a little more patient this time because we know that when you when you do have the best product in the market, it's a lot of wind at your back, and we love to we love to do this so I, I'd say that like the percentage of our time we spend doing customer development has just gone up exponentially every company we do.
0: So you mentioned your first financing. If it's okay, are you able to share any details about how you're thinking about selecting capital partners yeah. or uh, things like that? Because now you know, startup, or I, sh- I should say company number three, I'd imagine you have some wisdom there. Uh,
1: I don't know if it's wisdom. You know, We've bootstrapped our companies um, historically, and this time we did the same. But um, this problem we're this problem we're going after this time is, is bigger. It's more capital intensive and we need some money. Sure. And it's, you know, that's always an interesting journey because there's a lot of money in the Valley right now. There's a lot of money. And, um, dare we, dare when- we
0: say tourist, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some of it being tourist money. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's different than it's ever been. You have people who are kind of coming down in the size of rounds that they want to, that they want to lead or participate in. You know, at the end of the day, it's been interesting because a lot of times like a VC, a VC is looking for multiples and an entrepreneur is not necessarily looking for that right away. So the interests are not aligned out of the gate sometimes in terms of like, you're not aligned with your investor. We got really, really lucky. We actually, someone we know very well, someone we've worked with, uh, Alex Bard from from Redpoint Ventures. We have a long history with him. Um, we have a lot of respect for him. Uh, he knows us really well and we know him. So um, we, did, we decided not necessarily to select you know, a firm, but we selected a venture partner specifically that we wanted to work with. Um and Which that, is
0: so smart because the you know, the best partners are highly sought after. So there's not, you know, with average tenure being, I don't know what it is, let's say twenty four months, you might want to make sure you pick the right partner. Yeah. Because <laughs> <yeah>. the firm
1: <laughs> Yeah. yeah. We've we've got a we've got a long history with him. We've seen him we've seen him sort of be a a peacetime leader and a wartime leader. And it's really interesting to see both sides and yeah, you know, I can't say enough nice things about him. He's, uh, he's got a lot of integrity. He's honest. He's smart. He's fun. And he, he knows us. So, um, I think we got, we got really lucky that we had that as an option. Um, and we were actually super happy that he wanted to work with us, you know, cause they talked to a lot of companies and they only make a few, a few bets, sure. right? So, um, yeah. And we also, um, Salesforce participated as well. So Salesforce Ventures also participated. Congrats. Um, you know, Salesforce, uh, you know, Johnson, Johnson. we have a lot of history with them. Everything we do, we assume that Salesforce is the customer master mm. and that's going to be core to everything we do as the customer master. So we want to have a, a good relationship with with Salesforce and want to have um, a lot of sort of deep connections beyond, you know, building product integrations.
0: I think the team at Salesforce is, is awesome for a number of reasons and full disclosure, they're sponsored several podcasts, but in terms of B2B marketing and expertise and product expertise, is there another company out there that has more B2B connections and expertise and experience right now? Would you say? Because it's, that's uh, one of the most appealing things about Salesforce for us is uh, we've learned so much about the B2B space that we didn't know before this, that they've like basically inadvertently taught us or directly taught us in customer development conversations. So yeah, what's your take on Salesforce as kind of like the B2B category king?
1: I mean, they're, they're, it's undisputed at yeah. this point, you know, and I think that, you know, I worked at Salesforce for seven years after they acquired our first company and, you know, I was kind of a stupid kid at that point And I didn't, I didn't appreciate a lot of the things that that company does at scale operationally, in terms of the leadership and sort of the the culture that that Mark drives down into the company. Parker Harris, I mean, everyone knows Parker, but he's uh, in my mind. I didn't appreciate the things that he was doing at the time. You know, I was a young entrepreneur. I wanted to move fast. I wanted to ship code. I wanted to right. do things and. You know, now um, as I've scaled the business and I've kind of gotten into growth stage and I, you know, gotten beyond just building product, there's a lot of things that that company does at scale that, you know, it makes sense to me when I see them on Jim Cramer and he's like, oh, again, you know, Salesforce again, you know, I get it. It's, I think, a testament to just the, the machine that they've built over time and the values. And, um, you know, we've, we've taken a lot of lessons later that we didn't actually get the first time, you know, with those guys.
0: And so that brings up an interesting point, which is, that I think sometimes it's hard for other people at a company to see what and why executives are doing something because the fruits of that labor might not be visible for you know, a year, two years, three years. Was that kind of the case there?
1: I mean, it was funny. The thing I always remember is uh, you know, Mark, Mark's always been a visionary guy. You know, he's always said, you know, hey, it's our job to paint the future and then our customers will meet us there. Uh, Jeff Bezos says the same thing. You know, he talks about, you know, his management style where he t- he tells people, the executive team is not working on problems that we have right now.
0: Yes. That's yeah. not where
1: we should be spending our time. That's your job. You know, we're going to be working on the next, you know, the next thing. That's where we should be. And that's where, you know, the existing team should be. Parker used to always say, um, if everything is a priority, nothing's a priority. You know, so I mean, prioritization is so important And when you got a guy like Mark, he's like, we're going to do this. And Mark's an entrepreneur. And when you're an entrepreneur, you're, you want to go. You want to do it. You want to right. take risks. And and Parker was sort of the rational guy that had to operationalize it. He had to end resources that were finite. He had to put them on this. And you know when we were there, he always wanted to talk about we wanted to do a debt release, and, uh, which is reasonable, you know. But at the time, you know, I'm thinking, That's not not going to happen. But uh, <laughs> it was always interesting to see that that dynamic, you know, it, especially you know given the success of the company, they're still they're still down in it, you know, which is amazing to me.
0: Yeah, and I think too if you go to any events whether it's Dreamforce or the new world tours that are you know expanding around the country now, you'll see many of the executives there going around talking to customers, working and uh it's it's a cool dynamic uh anyways. So what's your take and uh, I would love to talk, you know, maybe swap some stories or share some stories on uh Silicon Valley and the serendipity and the kind of the magic that does happen here because you know, we see Silicon Valley on HBO or we see the media kind of bashing <laughs> tech that comes out of Silicon Valley. And a lot of it's justified. However, there are a lot of things that happen here that, you know, speaking from my limited experience of two years, two and a half years being here now, they're pretty magical that only happened here that never would have happened in, had I stayed in Maryland or something like that. So uh, yeah, yeah what's, what's your take on Silicon Valley and uh, any stories there?
1: I mean, I've, I've got a lot of them. Uh, it's a small community. It know? really I is. Mean, it really is a small <laughs> community. And, uh, you know, it's funny, we, um one of the first business books I ever read was called, it was a tiny little book written by one of the, I think engineers that worked on hot, the hot mail product and it was called lucky or smart. And, you know, essentially it's funny. It's, it's, we make decisions. We always turn everything into a mini cost benefit analysis, you know, all decisions, but we also make decisions in a way that will maximize our potential to get lucky because it takes both, right? It takes hard work. It takes making smart decisions, right? And it takes a little luck. Right. Staying alive long enough yeah. to get it. It takes a little luck. Yeah. And, um, you know, that those things happen here. I mean, our, our first, um, I mean, the first story that comes to mind for me is, uh, I think I was talking about this when we were getting started. I was at the Odeo, yeah. uh, you know, which was Evan Williams podcasting company little early as it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> um, they had uh free beer. So I was there and we, my business partner, Craig, and I just had started a company and, um, you know, we had just gotten our Vista print cards, you know, I think three cents a card. I mean, you couldn't even hold it out straight. It would kind of flop over when you <laughs> gave it to someone. And I was sitting there um, at the thing and I had just heard a Twitter pitch from Bizstone. Didn't get it. I thought pub sub sounded like a stupid idea, just like I guess many people did. And I was at the keg and a guy asked me, what, what are you doing? And I said, you know, for the first time, I think it was the first time I said, I just started a company, which meant like we, we had incorporated. Sure. And, uh, He said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, we're trying to basically create a keyword arbitrage tool that helps companies manage their pay-per-click across, at the time it was Hotmail, Yahoo, and, or sorry, it was MSN, Yahoo, and Google. And uh, very quickly we realized it was, Google was kind of the important one. And he said, you don't say. He said, I just came here from France. His name was Patrick Chanazon. And he said, I'm tasked with building a business API for AdWords. So we were the first company to get ad, uh, access to the to the AdWords API, wow. and that was just just happenstance, just random, yeah. you know. And like it's only only that stuff happens, yeah, uh, in the Silicon Valley. It's just <laughs> that's it's incredible just small community.
0: And uh, I would love to hear more too about history because you were mentioning that you had an established history with the uh, venture partner that you chose to work with at Qualified, and that you have a uh, long established history with your co-founders and some of your team. Uh, it's a really important topic because. I think some folks fall into the trap of thinking like you got to hurry up and select your co-founders or you got to hurry up and hire. But if you have a shared history with people, I feel like it gives you a foundation that you can build something much larger on. Why is history so important and how do you think about it?
1: I mean, it's, I mean, first of all, I consider myself extraordinarily lucky because yeah, choosing your co-founder and the first employees in your company, I mean, you're not going to make more important choices. And not everyone is um, in that position to do that because, you know, in your life, it's hard to for two people to be in the same spot at the same time, to be in the same mindset, to be to have their life in the same place that they can actually sure. invest so much in something together. Craig, Craig Swindert and I have been working together for twenty two years. Um we've been at six different companies, three of our own. We met at a company called Web Methods where we uh, we did integration infrastructure. He was an SE in the West, and I was an SE in the East and we met and we had, ended up on a proof of concept together and we ended up just really liking each other. After a while, we we started our own company together. When we got bought by Salesforce, uh, the first engineer we found is a guy named Bing Yang, and he's he's still on our team today. And the second engineer we found is a guy named Gopal Patel, still on our team today. So we've been working together for a really long time. And the advantages you have there is there's, there's, there's no uncertainties. Bing and Gopal have a special dynamic. They work together so well, their chemistry is so strong that they're a lot more powerful than having two good computer scientists. Craig and I have been working together so long that we already know when something is a better fit for one person versus the other, we already know. So there's, um, it just makes you more efficient, right? And you know, at the end of the day, we actually really enjoy each other's company personally. And if you're gonna spend so much time together, it's great. So you might as um, well have fun while yeah, you're doing it. Because- <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've been I've been blessed to to have been working with these guys. I think it's if I look back at what I'm most proud of, it's working with with a team I love um, all the time, day in day out, which is probably why we keep doing it, yes, yeah. because we, uh, <laughs> we really love it. And now we're familiar with the stages, sure, the stressful stages where we used to kind of freak out a little bit. Now we, we know it's, it's a phase and we know we're going to get through it. Right. Things we used to argue about a little bit more vehemently. We take it easy. We know it's not as important as the next thing we're going to fight sure. about later. So it's, um, and we, we, we also just, we don't have to prove anything to each other. So when we disagree, it's our duty to disagree. Right. And we know that to take a, an oppositional position is to to get to a better place and there's no, you it's know. to
0: strengthen the other person's I- yeah. idea, right? Yeah, or so um, the, the
1: organizational dynamics of, some, of it is, is spectacular.
0: Very uh, cool. And I mean, it sounds like you're thinking a lot about culture. So are there any other maybe like strategies or things you're doing now at the company number three where you're building culture more methodically? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, um, we just hired our
1: first woman and she's amazing. Which is always interesting when you're a startup of a bunch of guys in a room, which a lot of them are, <laughs> yeah, and um, we hired our first woman, she's amazing, and it's funny she's uh i think we we're making a conscious decision to to hire people who don't look like us, yeah, we think that that's the the right thing to do, and um, there's so many talented people in the area it's not a hard thing to do it's just um you know, it's finding someone who wants to come in and sit in a sweaty office with a, with a bunch of guys. <laughs>
0: We're speaking from an office that is uh, pretty, pretty warm right now in the midst of a heat wave in Silicon Valley. And, you know, you've also mentioned the words uh, lucky. When when you're building a business, you know, we, we kind of alluded to the fact that you need to stay alive long enough to get lucky. How, how do you think about that? Because it's, it's, it's one thing to use the word luck for a lot of things, but it's also in reality, you know, the result of, mitigating risks as you go, right? You're, you're continually reducing the amount of risks so you can get that upside exposure or have a chance at it. How are you thinking about that at Qualified and are you, what type of big opportunities do you see on the horizon that you really want to capitalize on or have a chance to get lucky with?
1: Yeah, I, I think you said it. I mean, it's time. It's a lot of times it's time in the game. I mean, look, when if you start a business, if you decide to bootstrap your own company and you're actually realistic about the odds, odds are it's not going to work. Right, it's really hard, and we we fully appreciate how hard it is, so we don't have any illusions, but then again, you know if you're not you're an entrepreneur you're you're optimistic. I mean, you're not an entrepreneur if you're not optimistic right right so we we like to say that we're realistically optimistic. We think about when we have to make big decisions, we think about sort of all the outcomes and we play them through together um, as a team, and at the end of the day, you know then you start to look at it as more of a cost benefit analysis so it's all about odds and what risks have what benefits. Right. So uh, I think we have a good dynamic in terms of how we make those big decisions. But like you said, you know, look, you got a burn rate and you're on the clock. So it's sort of about finding that balance between learning as much as you can and finding your product market fit as fast as you can and building product in a way that doesn't that doesn't inhibit you from actually making money, but not making money in a way that's going to somehow impact your, your product roadmap and the, the right product roadmap. So it's, it's a lot of balance. You know, it's finding that right balance and figuring out like how much time something should take, how long you should be working on something before you actually try something else, um, how, how fast you start to grow the company. Because, you know, the thing that is always, this is my third company that still amazes me how much time it takes. To do fundraising, I mean, one of the things I like about working at a startup is you get to do a lot of jobs. But you know, the last two months I've been a, lo- a well, really bad lawyer, but I've been a lawyer, I've been in contracts, yeah. And you know, that's when we close the financing, we we're pretty happy. But we're just happy to get back to 100% exclusively working on the business, yeah. So it's uh, you know, again, it's 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 part of the process. But this time it was a little earlier than we thought, you know. So you know, fundraising, hiring. Like that stuff is very time consuming, you know, when really the most important thing in an early stage company is getting the product right, doing customer development, hiring the right people. A lot of other things can be even, I don't, I don't want to call it a distraction, but it feels like it when you're doing it.
0: Yeah. And what's your take on this too? Because when I think about fundraising and what the future of uh, early stage financing is going to be, I'm really inclined to believe that a lot of it's going to come from banks that are technologically savvy, that they're going to just... Look at folks' bank accounts and start to make different offers. And in a way, we see companies like uh, like our bank, Silicon Valley Bank, starting to do this. By you know, if you have a SaaS model, you can kind of show those metrics, and they can see your bank account. So there isn't; it's not necessary for you to do the whole VC pitch and uh, get other offers or anything like that because that takes so much time. Whereas talking to the people that can see your books doesn't take much time. What do you think the future of early stage financing and investing looks like?
1: I, I think you're right. I mean, I think. You know, first of all, most people don't like working with banks, yeah. at the end of the day for a variety of reasons. A Silicon Valley Bank, I've heard great things about them. they're they're trying to be innovative in as much as they can as a, you know, a very highly regulated sure. you know, corporation. But I think when you look at uh, companies like Square, what they're doing with Square Capital, where they've got a huge massive ecosystem and they're starting to get into sort of like doing loans and they're starting to do things based on how much money is flowing through a system that sort of is all one system. Um, yeah, I think like going forward, the uh, microfinancing it's going to be a lot easier. Right. Uh, it's going to be a lot faster. It's going to be a lot more streamlined. Um, I think that's inevitable, you know, and, uh, it seems like the banks would be in a good position to do that. Right. But I can't say that they are, but sure. you know, yeah. I, you know, I think that they probably would be in a good position at some point, some, someone will have leverage and they will have to yeah. just like anything else.
0: Yeah. When it comes to the future too. Uh, you know, you're studying conversational marketing and sales and all of these things. What's the future look like there? How do we get to a place where marketing and sales are aligned and, you know, in enterprises right now too, there's a lot of fear because cost to acquire customers is just skyrocketing. A lot of these enterprises are discovering that social networks or these ad networks are casinos where the house always wins, somewhat like that. What's that future look like? And are there any trends you're excited about there?
1: Yeah, I don't know if excited is the word but um interested sure. is is def- maybe more Maybe watching cautiously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean if you look at sales and marketing are are different organizations, right? And you know in a B2B company marketing's metrics are is pipeline and sales is revenue. And they have different formulas, different personnel, different processes, different KPIs, different systems and they're different and they always have been, right? And it's always been sales and marketing kind of working together but often pointing the finger at each other. And that's, that's sort of an age old problem. It's a cliche at this point, but in this new world, they're going to have to be working more closely together and, and which is how it should be. You know, one of the things you learn when you've run your own company is that we're all on the same team, you know, at a bigger company, sometimes there can be different perspectives and you look at things through a different lens where like, I'm in this group, I'm on this team. This is what I care about. These are my metrics. These are my goals. This is what's associated with my promotion or my bonus.
0: Um, the luxuries of scale. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. When you're when you're when you're when you're at a company and you're all together, um, it's about like that that revenue number, and you're all in it together. And I think in this new world, marketing and sales are going to have to work more closely together. I mean, a perfect example is that uh, in qualified in our app right now, a lot of the setup of the app is done by marketing. So you take a look where you're spending demand gen dollars, what campaigns you're spending money on. And it's those rules and it's the data and the intelligence that lives in these systems and these processes that's going to be determining who has access to a salesperson. So right off the bat, when we're talking to people, we have to talk across marketing and sales. The sales team often has the sales development organization, the BDRs, the, sale, the account executives, they roll up to sales, but a lot of the engine and the rules and the campaigns are driven by marketing. And our system has users for both. So you, you build your, your rules around you know, your qualification rules. That's a marketer. And then your sales team is the one actually using it to engage with people on your website. So right off the bat, you're seeing the lines blur. And um, you know at the end of the day, I think that, I think that companies are not resistant to it. I think they want to do it, but I think there's a lot of change yeah. that's going to happen. Cultural change, personnel change, reporting changes, systems changes. You know, When you talk about business transformation, there's a, it's scary because there's a lot of things that are unknown, especially when you're unwinding something that's been the same for a decade, you know? And that's kind of what we see happening right now. We think we're, we're kind of on the, just at the beginning of it, but we're, we're seeing, you know, people are open to it, but we, are all, we also see people that are scared, right. that are intimidated and we don't blame them. You know, it's
0: Hard to make friends when you're unrolling yeah, <laughs> and messing up yeah. existing businesses. And, and when
1: people are intimidated, um, it makes me more confident that they understand what's happening Um, A lot of times when someone's ready to jump in and do it, you know, sort of like, just to be clear, you know, you, you know what you're getting into. This is not a project that's going to stop in 60 days. This is going to be an evolution of the way that you go to market for the next, you know, so I think that, I think that the time is here. You know, I think that that's clear about what we're seeing in the market. I think it's, it's time and people know it.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like a lot of uh, boards of companies are supporting these efforts or are terms like conversational marketing or you know, machine learning driven, whatever. It, are these a part of board conversations? Do you think? I mean, it, it depends on what kind of company
1: you're right. at, right? I mean, you know, you know, at a at a B two B company that has you know a sales team and has sales development representatives, you know, I'm not sure if it's a board conversation, but you hear account based marketing, conversational marketing. It's it's a new world that's coming, and I think that that is a conversation that's happening at the executive level for sure.
0: Gotcha. And uh, you mentioned too, that this is a uh, decade or decades long process where this is going to kind of like roll out. Are there any other uh, things you're watching closely? You know, we talked about, uh, we're kind of joking about the fact that artificial general intelligence is a ways out, although everybody still claims to have AI. What's that process like? And uh, are there any developments in machine learning that you're keeping a close eye on now?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because there's so many great stories about all of the amazing things that are happening, you know, when, when I think about artificial intelligence as it pertains to, to business, I think about pattern matching, which is kind of what I think it is. And that's kind of what it's going to be for a while. And when you have something that's repetitive with structured data, I think you're going to be able to build some pretty amazing things using machine learning and, and all of, and ML algorithms underneath and learning models. And I think you're going to be able to, to do a lot of amazing things. I mean, Google has open source libraries now where you know they can do natural language processing they can, they can do semantic analysis on things i mean it's it's powerful stuff but it's really going to have its own it's going to have its use cases right and and i think where we are more focused is, is a lot more nuanced sales conversations are not something that you can just put an ml algorithm underneath it and it's going to learn how to sell there's no positioning there's no objection handling there's no there's no empathy. We don't, I don't think that's something that is going to be automated per se. So, um, we really are focused on having human one-to-one high fidelity conversations when it matters the most. And then for other things, you try to use automation because those aren't the things you should be focused on right now. Um, so if it doesn't go perfectly, that's okay. Right. So that's kind of our, that's our overall sort of, I guess, opinion on the space right now, but you know, things like support, I think there's going to be a lot of evolution in automation. It's a cost center, you know. When you have structured data, you can do a lot of amazing things. So I think that the, you know, AI has its place, but we just don't think it's in sales right now.
0: Gotcha. And uh, when it comes to life outside of work, you're a busy fellow. You have your wife's uh, GC of a company. Uh, you have two daughters. You have two boxers. What do, yeah? What are you doing outside of work for fun? How are you uh, recharging these
1: yeah, days? I. I get very grumpy if I don't have some outlet, and uh, right now it's tennis. I, so I picked up tennis at forty-five, and I'm terrible, but I love it. I love I love to pick something and and learn about the game, the strategy, and how to get better. I love to sort of pick something and um, start at the bottom and then just work my way up. And so I started uh, tennis a couple of years ago, and I've been I've been playing tennis ever since. So I try to play in the morning and then get a good workout in before work, and then um, that's our the only thing I'm doing right now besides, besides working.
0: Nice. Any trips to vineyards? Are you reading? Are you watching a series? You know, you mentioned podcasts earlier. What are your media and entertainment experiences like?
1: Yeah. I mean, ever since you guys got me hooked on, (laughs) uh, you you guys really did. I mean, like Ian, Ian lit a fire. Like I said, Craig and I watched Ian go. Awesome. And, uh, you know, we were inspired by him and actually we've been inspired by your company. So I've been, you guys, Thank you. you guys lit the podcasting fire in me. Thank you I so apologize much, yeah. to Amazon. I'm sure they're going to get by without me. <laughs> uh, but you know my Audible subscription is I've got credits just stacking up in Audible. Yeah. Yeah, I've been listening to actually all your podcasts and I've been also listening to The Rogan Experience quite yeah. a bit. Um like I said, I've got a commute and um I've got a podcast going all the time. And it's um it's great. I mean, not all of them are great. I mean, I found, it's funny I've found a lot of them. I've learned a lot about your business, I guess, and, sure. and figured out like the first podcast I did you know, I'm not sure that I was sort of in the right mindset. Uh, I guess. Um, yeah, but I think that uh,
0: it's kind of tricky, right? Because there are, the rules haven't been written yet, and there's like a lot of flexibility. And sometimes in areas where there's not, there aren't constraints, it's hard to figure out how to be creative in the right ways. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, for you guys,
1: it's also it's product market fit, right? It's like who's who's going to be interested in this conversation,
0: right? Like who's yeah. got
1: any interest whatsoever? Like if if half my family. They, they probably won't even get through this podcast, sure, because yeah. they they're bored out of their mind, right? right. Um, but which is,
0: it's still a great, great thing for both of us, though, because these uh, conversations, if done right, can be very, very evergreen, and not only be evergreen, but we've found too that they're shared by the right people. Like the right people are just able to find these, so that gives us a lot, a lot of hope when these spread through word of mouth and direct recommendations. Uh, so that's a really exciting, I, I think, thing about media because there's there's no friction here with podcasts too. It's not like, you know, your company's e-learning platform or this (laughs) subscription that you got to share a license with a friend or anything like that. It's like, there's no barrier to to just dive into the media. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. What about fiction or nonfiction? Are there any type of stories that have really like inspired you maybe as a young person or maybe as a a teenager, you read a a sci-fi series or something like that? Any, any books like that come to mind?
1: You know, what's funny is I, I just busted out the choose your own adventure books for my daughter. Classic. Um, She did not like them at all. Uh, that hasn't worked They're (laughs) still, still, they're still pretty much 90% unicorn and Barbie. Um, (laughs) but you know, the, I did start reading some autobiographies or listening to them on Audible before I left for, for podcasts. Shoe dog, Phil Knight's autobiography was, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's, it was, it's just always great to hear someone's story that has a journey like that. Yeah. I also read Andre Agassi's Open, which was really phenomenal, and I uh, heard that's great. And I also thought the the hard thing about hard things was really good too. Yeah. Um as as someone who's kind of getting get a little bit older and more experienced, uh, it was great to hear someone look back and and kind of recount the things they did and you know how they could have done them better and you know it was, I th- I thought it was just written from a real position of honesty.
0: Definitely. Did Ian tell you the uh, Baldwin story yet? No. Speaking of Phil Knight, okay, so. The first time we uh, worked with any celebrity for narration on, on our podcast, uh, it was Alec Baldwin. We submitted an offer. You know, he accepted. He was excited about the project, and we went to work with him. And uh, you know, he shows up to the studio, and he uh, he likes to get in, and you know, not not too much conversation or anything. So we kick it off, <laughs> and it's it opens with, and this is right after you know maybe there's some things you heard about in the news, like right after that happened, where he was in the news recently. Yeah. And uh, so he, he shows up and we have a videographer there. And the first thing he does is point to the camera and is like, I didn't, I didn't agree to this. I I didn't know this was going to be here. And so we had to get flexible. It It was in the contract. However, I don't think that message got to, got to Alec. And so after that, we waited about four to five hours before we had any idea of what was actually going on because he just jumped into the script, started reading it. And he was just, he was just plowing through it. However, we didn't know like if he liked it, if he, anything really. So Ian and Alec are in this uh, this old, the whole story is way too long to tell, but this is a condensed I listened, version. I
1: listened to the episode. Oh, okay. Awesome. I did. Awesome. I heard it. I heard it. Yeah.
0: So we're, He's we're, a busy
1: guy. <laughs> super
0: super yeah. busy. So we're in this little studio and Ian's recording with him. And uh, finally, after it was like four hours, he puts the Phil Knight story down because we'd written this story about, about Phil for the story podcast. And he just, he puts it down and he's like- I like these. I like you guys. He's like, these are great. <laughs> and then after that, it was like an instant, an instant change. And it was uh, tons of rapport, great conversations. he was like, yeah, we got to work on something together in the future. Like, let me know. And it was, it was great. However, there was this like whole uncertain, you know, period or whatever, but yeah, just a fun story. Ian will tell you the full version sometime. Well, he, but, uh, he, he warmed
1: up because I mean, you know, it appeared that he was right at home. Yeah, in here in the (laughs) podcast, and I was, you know, I guess my takeaway is how busy he is. You know, he's working on so many projects. Yeah, it, it probably
0: would have been more interesting. To, I'll listen to it
1: again now that I have the backstory.
0: <laughs> have uh, just ask Ian for the the full uh, the full download sometime because we were like we were just on pins and needles. We we're like he's he's just gonna like put throw these scripts down and walk out. We were sh- we we're sure of that, and we're not like we were like really worried about. It. We're like that's probably what's gonna happen. So let's just. <laughs> well, it's funny, but when I hear his voice now, my my wife. Is doesn't she's got a huge
1: brain? Doesn't turn off. So she's <laughs> she uh she has calming things that she does. Right for me, I play tennis, and it it gives me really good balance. You know when I don't have something technical to focus on. You know whether it's it could be anything, but it has to be something. It could be like video editing. It could be tennis. It could be sure. something where there's basically step functions of improving based on research and experience and trying new things. She listens to. A couple of different Netflix shows. So one of them is Thirty Rock. So I I have Alec Baldwin is like in my dreams. It's <laughs> he, playing on an iPad, a hot iPad resting on my head in the middle of the night, and which is the, always good for you. The, yeah. Then the other one she listen to is Frasier. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I've got like I've got like Frasier and, and Alec Baldwin yeah. playing all the time at night. So like they're they're kind of constantly on my mind. So it's, it was it was pretty cool here here Alec
0: Baldwin on under your, on under your show. Very cool, Sean. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have to call it quits. Stuff is waving me down outside. I got the uh, the next oh, interview coming up. Thank you for being generous with your time. This yeah. has been a blast. We'll have to get you on for round three, I guess, at this point because you're on marketing yeah, trends. Yeah. And Any
1: anytime, anytime. Awesome. I'm right around the
0: corner. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, qualified. We were just talking. I, I think we're going to start using it. Yeah. Uh, we're awesome. really excited about that. I know our uh, growth lead has been uh, looking into this for a while, and he's he's all worried about the budgets and everything like that. But I told him I was like, this is from everything I've seen and after hearing about you your team and uh, looking at the product I'm really excited to try it so uh, yeah
2: that's, that's great
0: yeah, looking forward to it awesome thanks for listening yeah. everyone
2: mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter network of podcasts and brand studio designed to accelerate learning head to mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like the mission daily the story i.t visionaries education trends marketing trends future of cities and more mission studios has worked with companies like salesforce twilio and catera to create custom media channels that drive results make sure to subscribe to the missions daily newsletter at mission.org